You're listening to Icebreakers, the podcast exploring all things Canadian and Eurasian, business, culture, and personalities. The series is produced by Serba, the Canada-Eurasia-Russia Business Association. We're a non-profit supporting trade, investment, and good relations between Canada and the countries of Eurasia. I'm your host, Nathan Hunt, one of the founders of Serba and former chairman of the National Board. I invite you to tune in regularly for valuable insights relating to the region. Good day, everybody. We are privileged to have as our guest today a heavy decorated astronaut, engineer, pilot, and author, Colonel Chris Hadfield. Yes, that's the man who performed David Bowie's space oddity from the International Space Station. Colonel Hadfield's many awards include the Order of Canada, the Meritorious Service Cross, and the NASA Exceptional Service Medal. He was named the top test pilot in both the U.S. Air Force and the U.S. Navy and was inducted into Canada's Aviation Hall of Fame. He has flown three space missions, has helped to construct two space stations, and has performed two extravehicular spacewalks. He has crewed crewed both the space shuttle and the Russian Soyuz spacecraft. And his crowning achievement, he commanded the International Space Station in the spring of 2013, the first Canadian to do so. I'm pleased to welcome today Colonel Chris Hadfield. Hello, Chris. Hello, it is great to be joining uh, everyone that, that's listening. I, you know, I've lived all around the world, I lived off the world, as you mentioned, but uh, I spent about uh, five years living in Russia. And so uh, it's wonderful to be able to reflect on that and what's going on and the new book that I've written and some of the stuff going on in the future. I've been looking forward to our conversation. Well, we're looking forward to hearing about your book. I do have to mention that you are the first and only person who has sent me an email from outer space. So I... Uh, <laughs> Carry that as a feather in my cap. (laughs) Glad to have that distinction. There we go. Now, you grew up on a Canadian farm and we're told were inspired to join the astronaut corps after seeing the Apollo 11 mission touch down on the moon in 1969. There have been, of course, hundreds of astronauts, but almost none, I have to say, in the modern age is well known as yourself. Did you ever imagine that you would become one of the best known astronauts most sought-after speakers and, and experts on space travel. What, why did that happen? Are, are you an influencer? Do you think that's a, a fair term to use in your case? Well, we're all influencers, but you know, it, it just kind of depends on how many people we influence. I, I think it actually stems from what you just asked. I watched how the space program of the 60s and 70s was shared with the world. And reflecting of different cultures, the Soviet program was kept very secret until something was complete, cleaned version of it was presented to everybody. And when something went wrong, no one was told. So that's one way to talk about what you're doing. But the Americans did it differently. They just broadcast everything. And when the Apollo 1 crew was killed, or when Apollo 13 went just about killed their crew of three, or when Apollo 11 was so triumphantly successful, They just shared it with everyone, and it had enormous impact. There were more PhDs per capita in the United States in the 10 years after Apollo 11 than any time before or any time since. People saw themselves differently because of the inspiration of what some people were doing in exploring the universe. And I think I just sort of internalized that. If I ever get a chance to be one of the world's astronauts, I'm going to just try and share it every possible way I can. You know, writing music, performing music, videos, writing books, speaking all around the world, even talking to you today. So to me, it's just all part and parcel. There's also a responsibility. If you're trusted 
to go be a spaceship commander and funded by your own government, you know, there is a public trust to not just squander it and keep it to yourself. So I think all of that fits together. And that's that's why I conduct life the way that I do. Well, you've touched on the music portion. I, I have to say the word prolific comes to mind when we discuss Colonel Chris Hadfield. Uh, have there been other munitions in space? I don't think anybody's recorded anything like, like what you did. I mean, that was just an amazing accomplishment. Well, lots of astronauts and cosmonauts are musicians. And in fact, the Soviet space program in the 1970s and early 80s, they had guitars up on Salyut, and they actually transferred a guitar from Salyut 6 or 7 over to Mir, their space station that was launched in 86. And when I went and helped build Space Station Mir in 1995, that guitar was still there. And I brought up uh, another guitar. So there's always, you know, every explorer, you know, think of hornpipes on a sailing ship or, you know, whatever. There's all explorers have brought music with them. And that's true for people on board the space station. And I'm really looking forward to, as we settle the moon, how music is going to evolve in that entirely new environment just like it's evolved in, you know, New Orleans or the Bluegrass Mountains or somewhere, you know, it becomes sort of a a concoction of the local environment. So yeah, music's everywhere, including the space station. Well, I think we're a few generations away from any moon vibe, but you know, that could happen, that could develop. Coming faster than you think. You're probably right. You're probably right. Now, I'm reading your rap sheet here. This is just astounding. You're a pioneer of many historic firsts. In 92, you were Canada's first fully qualified space shuttle crew member. In 95, on the shuttle Atlantis, you were the first Canadian to operate the Canada Arm in space. You were the first Canadian to board and pilot a Russian Soyuz spacecraft as you helped build the Russian space station Mir, as you have already alluded to. Uh, Afterwards, you spent two years in Russia as director of operations at the Yuri Gagarin Cosmonaut Training Center in Star City. And 2013, as we've already mentioned, you commanded the International Space Station, the first and only Canadian ever to command any spaceship of any sort so far. That's that's very impressive. But few people know that you had to study spaceflight and aerodynamics in the Russian language. Is that right? Tell us a little bit about that experience. How did you learn Russian and, and what was it like having to communicate on technical matters in such a foreign language? Well, I, I think like a lot of people, uh, I learned the language, you know, you know, just like everybody, you know, I, I'd learned to speak German reasonably and then learned to speak French. And I found Russian very difficult uh, just because unlike German and French, there's not a lot of overlap with English, not a lot of cognates, you know, speaking French and speaking English, you just sort of pronounce the word different. And it's almost always the same word, you know, international, international, you know, it's like just yep, yep. the accent, right? But Mirznarodny is nothing like international. And so, <laughs> and the, and of course the alphabet is different and the traditions and histories are different. So, and, and the very structure of, you know, how you use cases and how, how you can be descriptive in an entirely different way. So I, I found it quite complex. I, I was hired as an astronaut. And then uh, because uh, Russia was being invited to be part of the International Space Station, I started studying Russian within a few months of being hired as an astronaut. And I studied Russian for 20 years. And, but on my first space flight, we helped build Mir. And then on my third space flight, I was the pilot of a Soyuz, or you know, for those in the know, so the commander sitting in the center seat and on the left side is the flight engineer one. 
But essentially, that's like captain and pilot. And and so I, I was the pilot of a Soyuz. And so, as you say, I had to study, you know, orbital mechanics in Russian and, and all the control theory of the Soyuz spaceship in Russian one-on-one with uh, with Yuri Manyak, uh, a classic, uh, extremely brilliant and focused chain-smoking instructor at Star City. And and so my Russian is terrible, but it, it's good <laughs> enough, you know, to be able to uh, to fly a spaceship by myself if I needed to. And, and so it, it, I found it complex, but I also found it, you know, obviously very enriching to be able to speak some of the language uh, allows you much more insight and and you get so much more out of daily conversation and just uh, you know being in Moscow or or Petersburg or somewhere. So so yeah, I think it's you should try and speak as many languages as you possibly can. Well, that's for sure. I don't know that I'd want to have a taxi driver who read the taxi instructions in a language that he didn't understand well. So, <laughs> yeah, especially if the taxi went um, twenty-five times the speed of sound. Yeah. That would be a problem. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> on that note, you you touched on the word traditions. I know that there's a tradition that you're supposed to watch the movie White Son of the Desert in Baikonur before the launch. That's the Russian launch launch pad, which is of course in Kazakhstan. What uh, what are some of the other traditions? And uh, uh, where do they come from? Why is that? Well, a lot of it is just uh, human nature. And, you know, cultures are different. The, the Russian culture from the original tribes, you know, Bruce and Tver and the, you know, the ancient history that people palpably have within themselves that we completely lack in North America. You know, Canada was just sort of an instant country granted nationhood by Great Britain and and so a lot of our traditions haven't developed yet, or we're just trying to sort them out as to which ones we should honor. And so as a result, we don't really put the same merit in it that I think older cultures do. But obviously, the Soviet or Russian space program was the first with Sputnik in 1957 and then Gagarin in 1961. And so the way that the people then prepared to launch Sputnik and then to launch the first human being, to launch Yuri in April of 61, that kind of established how we do these things. How do you not just mechanically get ready, but how do you psychologically get ready? How do you physiologically get ready? And so if Yuri decided he wanted to watch, uh, you know, Biela Sonsa Pustini before launch, then, or, you know, some of the subsequent cosmonauts did, then it's like, hey, those last guys did this. Let's do the same. Let's just sort of establish the norms. One of the things Yuri did, you know, all the pomp and circumstance and politics and all the generals and everybody got to salute everybody, finally got on his bus to go out to his uh, bus stock and go out to space. But anybody, you know, obviously the standard tradition, sit quiet in your living room before you leave. But but it's also a good idea to go to the bathroom. And with (laughs) all of the stuff going on, Yuri realized, hey, no one budgeted me time to go to the bathroom. So he actually, when the bus went out of sight of where all of the generals and everybody was coming in a low spot out there at Baikonur, he had them stop the bus and he jumped off and ran around, undid his pressure spacesuit and just took a leak, just peed on the tire. And, <laughs> oh, good uh, Lord. <laughs> so that became an instant tradition. And every single crew that has launched from Baikonur since then, self-included, has stopped and peed on the tire. And for the women astronauts where the, you know, the plumbing is different, I, I know one at least 
she just collected some of her urine in a little squirt bottle so she could come around and squirt her own urine on the tire because traditions are important, you know? And, uh, <laughs> and you know, we wear a diaper underneath, to, you know, so obviously we take care of the straight Good Lord, you guys, needs, are, you guys but, are worse um, than, you guys are worse than baseball players. <laughs> well, I'm not superstitious, but at the same time, uh, traditions <laughs> and methodologies, they're, you know, you're girding for battle, you know, you're getting yourself mentally and physiologically ready when I go out to fly an airplane, you know, the things that I do beforehand get me into a different state so I'm more capable. And so I recognize the necessity of traditions. And besides, it's good to launch with an empty bladder. <laughs> so tell me this. I, I, we understood that you refused NASA's offer of a nice townhome on the territory of Star City, that you and your wife opted instead to live with the, the people in a high rise or a mid rise somewhere in downtown Moscow. Or was it was it in Korolev? Yeah, the uh, Russian space program, they have their headquarters right in Moscow, just on uh, Olympiski Prospect, I think, and then, or just off of it. And then the mission control, Center Upravlenia Palyotomy, SUP, it's out in Korolev, as you say. But Star City, which is east of town, only, you know, in traffic, only four hours away, um, it's where the cosmonauts live and work and train. And so I, I had... Uh, Dom Dva, you know, the second building put together there at Star City back in the 50s, they have apartments for cosmonauts. And, uh, you know, Yuri Gagarin had an apartment there. And Valentina Tereshkova, she still has an apartment there. Uh, they had some where uh, cosmonauts have passed away and their family didn't want it anymore. And so NASA rented one from the cosmonaut or from the Gagarin Cosmonaut Training Center. And they had it available. And I thought, you know, shoot, I'm in Russia. I don't need to live in a little American enclave. I, I actually want to have the experience and, and get to know my neighbors and see what it's actually like. And my wife and I are definitely of one mind on that. And so I lived there for, um, gosh, a couple of years. And it was great, you know, beautifully insulated and, and very, fam you know, family and coming by the Dujourni in the morning as she's downstairs watching the door and you know, all just the, the smells and the heat and the, you know, just how how it all works and the, you know, the shutdown of hot water for a couple of weeks in the spring and all the rest of it. It's just a normal life. And, and it, it just enriched the experience enormously. And besides, you know, those the buildings are very practically built for the climate of, of that part of the world. So it just, you know, made good sense for a lot of regions. And if I had the chance again, I, I would obviously do exactly the same thing. Well, you talk about enriching. There's nothing more enriching than taking an ice cold shower when it's uh, plus 10 Celsius outside, let me tell you. Yeah, that's, that's all right. I mean, <laughs> it, it, it keeps you focused, you know? It really does. It really does. Well, those of us who lived in Russia, myself included, know the feeling. But uh, anyway, you talked a little bit about the sights and smells. I'm going to shift gears. Uh, for, you, we want to talk about your book, but first I want to talk about life in space. What is it like? in the International Space Station, living, the, the sights, the smells, personal hygiene, getting around. What is life like up there? Nathan, getting around is the big change. You're weightless. And that sounds like just a word. What it actually means is you have now been granted a superpower. You can fly effortlessly. You are you know, Wonder Woman or an X-Man or Tinkerbell or whatever. You can, you can fly. <laughs> And it is wonderful being able to fly. It feels much more natural than having to walk everywhere where, where gravity is the ultimate oppressor, always grinding you under its heel down into the dirt of the earth to suddenly be able to fly effortlessly everywhere. You're just so graceful and elegant and acrobatic. And 
the space station, in order to stay in orbit, it's going at tremendous speed. It's going eight kilometers a second, you know, 17 and a half thousand miles an hour. So you whip around the entire world every 92 minutes. And that means you see entire continents, you know, in the time it takes to drink a, a cup of tea, and, you know, 10 minutes. And you cross, cross North America in 10 minutes. So not only are you weightless and, and being, you know, magnificent, but the whole world is rolling by in this glorious, beautiful, textured kaleidoscope out the window. And you're running 200 experiments. So there's an intense, really interesting purpose. And it's just overwhelmingly busy on board. And you have to exercise a couple hours every day. So we've got various types of weightless, friendly exercise equipment to keep the muscles and bones strong. And, and it's just seven days a week, you know, six o'clock in the morning, my alarm would go off and you work till 10 o'clock at night. And then I would steal a couple hours of what was supposed to be scheduled sleep to do other things, you know, write music and, and play the guitar and record videos and, you know, write my family and, and get on social media and do stuff like that. If you watch movies about it, you know, First Man or, or Ad Astra or something, it's always so grim and sad and everyone's all stern. It's nothing like that. Spaceflight is joyful and fun and hilarious. And you're there with a bunch of great people from all around the world. I don't know why the memes of uh, of media, you know, Bowie's Space Oddity and, and Elton John's Rocket Man and other songs, they all use space as a metaphor for loneliness. They have it wrong. Space flight, you, you get to see everybody on Earth every day. It's It's just magnificent. And so I wanted to, you know, share that with people now, but also during my whole experience also. What, what does it smell like in the International Space Station? Give it to us straight, Chris. On the space shuttle or on the Soyuz, it stinks like, like uh, three people or, or seven people that have been in a van for seven days, you know, it's with no real good bathing facilities. That's a small, very transitory type of transport vehicle. But the space station is huge and has a really good air circulation system and excellent filtration. Six months up there, I didn't smell one other person. Even the two toilets on board, you know, even on Earth, just go to any sort of public toilet. And, you know, it's it's uh, those ones just by Komsomolskaya there, you know, uh, those public toilets, that's pretty rank. But um, <laughs> on board the space station, even if someone else had just come out of the toilet, not not even a trace of smell of other people. It's got a terrific air handling system. And we need it, of course, because your lungs can't be counted on as the main air purifier of the spaceship. You need us, otherwise you'll slowly get poisoned, you know, all the trace gases. So we have all sorts of really advanced air purification equipment. On Earth, we count on the trees and the grass and nature to do it for us. In the spaceship, it's mechanical. And so it smells pristine. It smells like maybe a really nice office building or a hospital or, or any place where you don't even think about the fact that there are no smells. Interesting. You touched on the idea of a toilet. Do you actually sit, have they invented a toilet that you can actually sit down on and do your business or is it more complex than that? Well, without gravity. And we don't need too much detail here. <laughs> without gravity, you don't need to sit. You never sit down for six months because there's no down, right? Okay. But okay. All right. You, uh, and to pee, you just pee into a tube with a funnel and the funnel, there's an adapter fits up against the body for the women and it works fine. Just has a little air pulled into it. So the urine goes down the tube and then that water is collected in a sewage system treated, recycled, centrifuged, filtered. And just like on Earth, that becomes our drinking water again. 
Uh, it's a little more personal up there because you know whose urine it was, but but it's the same as on Earth. Um, but the solid waste, we don't have an efficient way to recycle that yet. So you just sort of get strapped to it. It does look sort of like a toilet seat. Uh, and actually, it's made of wood, which is, you know, kind of comforting. And um, and you're just sort of strapped against it. And the solid waste comes out of your body. It's pulled down into the toilet by air instead of gravity. And then it's contained. The thing actually looks like a milk bottle. And when it gets full, it gets sealed up super tight so we don't get any of that smell in the ship. And eventually, that becomes just part of our trash, part of our solid waste that every, you know, month or two, put in one of the empty ships like a Progress and, uh, and it jettisons and burns up in the atmosphere. So the next time you're wishing on a shooting star going across the sky, you have to rethink what it actually may be burning up in the atmosphere. <laughs> it could be solid waste. Oh, dear. <laughs> it could be spaceship, astronaut solid waste, yeah. They, they say solid waste happens. That's, that's a nice <laughs> euphemism. I'm going to remember that one. <laughs> yeah. So you're... you're uh, as I've already said, you're a prolific person. You're a musician. We all heard your performance of David Bowie. That was stunning. You're also an accomplished author. You wrote uh, An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth, uh, and it has a subtitle. And you're coming out with uh, a, a new thriller. It's your first foray into that, uh, yeah. into that uh, genre, I believe. What, what can you tell us about The Apollo Murders? Sure. As a brief, shameless self-promotion, this is my first book, An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth, yep. which is just how to lead a better life. A book of images called You Are Here, a children's book that is it's just sold all over the world uh, called The Darkest Dark. And they've all been in multiple languages, including Russian and New York Times bestsellers. But this book, just out now, uh, October 12th of this year is uh, the release date. And it's my first time I've written fiction. And this is alternative history thriller fiction. I said it in 1973. It's Apollo 18. And uh, obviously, the Cold War is going on. I, I was a combat pilot in the Cold War, so I'm very familiar. It's the American program. It's the Soviet program. The Soviets had a secret spy station at the time called Almaz, which was armed with a machine gun. That's all true. They also had Lunachod driving around on the moon, uh, a research vehicle operated out of um, Simferopol by a team down there in the Crimea. And that's all true. And both Almaz and uh, Lunachod mysteriously malfunctioned in the spring of 73. And that's all true. And so I interwove a plot of astronauts and cosmonauts and the, you know, the U.S. system going through all of its Watergate Vietnam mess and um, the lack of ability because of the N1 rocket for the Soviets to get to the moon and their follow-on programs and the Proton rocket, this uh, thriller fiction. And like James Cameron, the guy who wrote, you know, did all the movies, the most successful filmmaker in the world, you know, he said just a, a barn burner of a book, couldn't put it down. Frederick Forsyth wrote The Day of the Jackal. He loved it. And Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, he loves the book. It's, I just can't believe the people that should know better that think it's a good book. So. I, it's just now getting uh, translated into 12 other languages already besides English and French and um, including Russian, a Russian. I was going to say, hopefully, hopefully Russian is in there. Yes. Yeah. So I'm really looking forward to my Russian friends reading it because in a lot of this type of book, the Russians just get cast, you know, American media get cast as a bad guy. That's not the case in here. So anyway, but it's over half the characters are real people. And, and it's all technically just as right as an astronaut could make it. So uh, I think you'll enjoy the Apollo murders. 
Oh, fascinating. Fascinating. I, I get so fed up with Russians being the bad guys yeah. and the gangsters and the meanies in every film and book that comes out. So uh, it's nice to hear that this sounds like there will be a refreshing change. Yeah, I hope so. And, and it, but it, what it really does is reflects reality. People do what they believe in and what they what they think they need to do. People do things for their own reasons. And whether they're you know raised in a, a system in, in South Africa or Russia or Canada or the United States, they're somewhat a reflection of the culture where they're raised. And that's what motivates them. It's not evil and, and perfect. And obviously, there are very bad people in every country and, and very good people. And, and so I think because I've lived in the United States and Canada and Russia and other countries, I think it's a little more reflective of the reality of people. And, and I, I think folks are going to find that to be a, a pretty uh, accurate and fun part of the Apollo murders. Now, did I understand you to say that the Almaz state was was that a machine gun was actually planted on the moon, or did I misunderstand that? Almaz was a, a spy space station that orbited the world, okay. and uh, it was secret at the time, and it was it was kind of covered by the more publicly known Salyut program. But they were worried, obviously, about just like you put guns on a on a bomber aircraft, they were worried about self defense, and they actually took a machine gun that was the tail gun of, of a Soviet bomber at the time and modified it and mounted it as the gun on the Almaz space station. And it was actually fired in space. And, uh, and that's it. It, it, was, it was really fired in space. Yeah. Yeah. And, Amazing. Yeah. The book, I mean, that would the book mess- is incredibly grounded in real life. I put a section at the back called author's note and it's just there. So you don't have to Google everything. You can actually find out that, you know, Gabdullah Tipov is a real guy that drove and and the characters and who they were and the, and the space station and all the stuff, because the book is as absolutely real as I can make it. Because to me, those are the best alternative history fictions where the thrill of the story is wrapped up in all of the things that really happened with real people and, and you know, real events. And I think it makes the story really credible. In fact, uh, James Cameron said, the mission that never really happened or did it? Because <laughs> okay. Jim, Jim, Jim Cameron, oh, he loves the book. Yeah. Anyway. So fun. some of these characters, by the way, if you're basing them on real people, some of them must still be alive. Are they aware that a book has been written about them or is this going to be a, a surprise for them? Well, I was worried about that, Nathan, because if I'm going to, you know, have a living per- or any real person, you know, aren't they going to sue me or, or you know, exactly. arrest me or something? So I talked to my publishers just to check, you know, a couple of years ago when I started writing the book. And they said, no, uh, well, each country has their own libel and slander laws. So it kind of depends where the book's published. But so long as you're not, you know, slanderous or libelous, if you're just putting dialogue sort of true to character into the mouths of people, then, you know, that's that's OK. But not many of, I mean, uh, the the character that drove... Uh, Lunachod on the moon. He's got a relatively significant part in the book, and it'll be a surprise to him, I think, to see himself brought to life. But in my case, you know, I'm famous enough. You said I was an influencer. I'm enough of an influencer that I've shown up in all kinds of things. I'm in graphic novels and comic book novels. I'm I'm a character in kids' books. I'm a character, you know, all the time. And people write dialogue for me all the time. And I'm, you know, I, I don't worry about it. It's just kind of, it's another way of of recognizing the things that I've done and maybe helping other people to understand them and bring them to life. So I think this is sort of the same thing. It's a compliment at the end of the day, isn't it? Well, hopefully. If they wrote, you know, if they turned me into a, 
you know, a, a Spider-Man bad guy, I might want to take offense. But it's <laughs> a reflective of who I am and what I've done. Then, you know, where's the harm? Very interesting. Very interesting. Well, the, the Apollo murders and it's out to the 12th of October is what I heard you say, right? Correct. Uh, yeah. And it's out in uh, print and uh, digital. If you like reading electronic book, I also got, I think, the best narrator in the world, a guy named Ray Porter. And he's the one who did, and he does accents. So his Russian accents are good. His Nixon is terrific. His Kissinger is really good. And he and I worked together a couple months ago for him to do the audiobook version. But, all, you know, it's available worldwide here very shortly. It'll take a little longer for some of the other languages because they just have to put it through the translation. But um, it should be available by Christmas. And, uh, you know, if that's a, a holiday folks celebrate, should be available by then in most places around the world. Good Lord, Nixon, Kissinger, you've got the bases covered, Chris. Yeah. You've got everybody in this book. Yeah, and, you know, uh, we've got uh, Khrushchev and Brezhnev and, uh, gosh, uh, you know, all because some Russian characters are Soviet characters that, that people don't even know. And inside Lubyanka as well, an interesting insight into real people and one, one imagined character inside Lubyanka and the KGB. Now, do you have uh, Gene Krantz, uh, who was made famous in the, the Apollo 13 saga? The head yeah, of a Gene's mission. a central character because he was one of the flight directors in Houston Mission Control for all of the Apollo flights. And so for this one, which is, uh, you know, it was a real Apollo flight, Apollo 18, but Nixon canceled it for financial reasons and Apollo 19. But they built the rockets and they built the spaceships. They, he just, and he was afraid, Nixon was, after Apollo 13, the near fatal flight, he, you know, he was afraid. He didn't want to have another flight where astronauts died or, or might die. And so he canceled Apollo 18 and 19, but even though the rockets were already built. And so, you know, to interweave that, obviously Gene Krantz, if Apollo 18 had gone, he would have been one of the flight directors for it. So Gene has a very pivotal role in it. And, and my, my audio narrator, Ray Porter, he does a great Gene Krantz. You, you'll love it. Oh, and, really? And, uh, <laughs> I, I just, I, this is the first edition, you know, it just came out. And so I sent a copy to all of the Apollo astronauts who are still alive. And also to Gene Krantz. So, so he has a, a first edition signed copy. And I hope he enjoys reading about himself in there, too. It sounds like we need to hear the audiobook. That's That seems to be the way to go. Well, yeah, it depends. I, I, often I will get the print book, but then I like getting the digital book so I can read it you know, on an airplane where I don't have to bring the book. But then if I'm busy, it's nice to be able to also listen to the audio. And I often go back and forth. You know, While I'm running, I can listen to it. And then later when I can time, I can sit and read it. And I, I find a lot of folks are doing that. But yeah, I, like if you read Andy Weir's new book, it was Ray Porter, again, the same narrator. He just brings it to life in a different way. You know, it's like a soundtrack for a movie. So there's advantages to all of them, I think. And, uh, and you know, I just, you know, I like all three, but I really love the audiobook because uh, I think Interesting. it helps you imagine what I was trying to put into, into printed words. Interesting. Now, you said that you believe Nixon canceled Apollos 18 and 19. Because of fear that that was not a money saving? You're telling me the rockets were already built, so they actually didn't save that much money by canceling the missions? Is that what you're saying? Correct. He, you know, he was, well, part of it was financial. Uh, I mean, the, the Vietnam War was ending, and that had been just hugely politically complex and damaging. Watergate was just brewing. It was, it was just rearing its ugly head. The events had already happened, but by the spring of 73, Haldeman, who's in the book, and Nixon and their team, they knew what was about to happen, or at least they could feel the, the fearful back of the neck hairs. And so all of that was going on. 
But something you don't know, Nathan, I'm sure, is that when the space shuttle was originally conceived, and that was under Nixon as well, obviously they had to trade off monies for that too, but he didn't have enough money in the budget for NASA to be able to fund the space shuttle. He had to go to the US Air Force and get them to contribute part of their budget. And so they got to dictate how the space shuttle was designed. And it was designed to launch out of California, get to orbit, have two astronauts go outside, grab a Soviet satellite, pull it inside the shuttle, come around and land after one orbit. That was a basic design criteria driven by the US Air Force at the time in the 70s. And those papers were recently declassified. And so when you read the plot of the Apollo murders, it's not fanciful at all. This is what was going on. This is what was driving a lot of the decision-making within what has now become you know, Space Command and then recently renamed as the Space Force. That, that was all getting its start there at the end of the Apollo program and the start of the shuttle program. And Nixon had to try and balance all those things. But part of it was just, you know, fear of looking bad. And, uh, you know, people are just human. People make their decisions for, for lots of different reasons. And, uh, and that was definitely one of them that was in his mind. Interesting. Interesting. I'd never heard that. Was it difficult to adjust to life in gravity after being weightless for so many months? Or is that easy? No, it's really tough. You know, after half a year without gravity, your body adapts, you know, and you could close your eyes. Anybody who's watching this, close your eyes and you immediately know where up is. And you can feel either if you're sitting down, you can feel yourself being lifted by your rear end, or if you're standing and feel it on the soles of your feet, your balance system is super attuned. And when you open your eyes, it matches, you know, what your, what your inner ear and all your other senses are saying, and your eyeballs match. But when you get to weightlessness, your eyeballs say, hey, you're in a room and this way's up. But your balance system says, I have no idea. And so your body's super confused and it makes you nauseous for the first few days. But then after a while, your body says, okay, disregard the balance system. You're completely visual now. So when you get back to earth and there's gravity again coming through your inner ear, your body is once again all in tumult and it makes you want to throw up because it thinks what could have caused an instantaneous disconnect between what you feel and what you see. And for the last 100 or 300,000 years, the only thing that could have caused that instantaneous change was if you'd eaten some sort of bad mushroom or hallucinogen, <laughs> right? And, and so your body's saying, hey, this thing's killing you, throw up right now, or, or you're gonna die of, of some neurotoxin. So your body makes you wanna throw up. So initially you're very nauseous. And your body says, now that you've thrown up, go to sleep, because we gotta slow down how fast you're, you're metabolizing this. And so you come back nauseous and, and wickedly tired. That's how you feel at the start. And your balance system doesn't work. If you stand up, you look like the worst kind of drunk, you're gonna fall over. Good Lord. But that, that fades over a day or two. And then after a week or two, you can walk sort of normally. After a couple of weeks, they let you drive a car again, but it takes a couple of weeks. Running took like four months for me until running felt normal again, because a lot of stuff's happening quick when you're running. But then when you actually look at my en endocrine system, bone density and the actual balance of all the chemicals in my body, that took about a year and a half to get back to a pre-launch. Oh, wow. So six months, 18 months, about three to one. Um, so if you go to space, it'll take you about three to one for your body to recover. And there's a lot of rehab, and but it's, but it's infinitely worth it. 
Nathan. I mean, flying in space is the coolest thing I could possibly imagine and definitely the coolest things I've done in my life. And so a little bit of rehab afterward, you know, it's like you have a great night. And so the next morning, you don't feel so, so good. You know, it's the price you got to pay. I remember you telling in the Canadian embassy, we had you as a speaker and you telling the story of you had to pass a book to somebody immediately after you landed. And in space, you, you passed the book by, by simply shoving it towards the person. <laughs> and you had done that on, on the ground. Do you remember that story? Yeah, it was during my first space flight and we landed and it was uh, not a book, but a, a videotape. And uh, Jerry Ross, who's flown in space more than any other shuttle astronaut, he flew seven times on the shuttle, but uh, he was doing a little videotaping of our landing and he wanted to hand me the videotape. And we'd just gotten back from space and he like floated it to me and I went <clears throat> and fell on the ground. And both of us were like, we're like a bad, you know, Japanese uh, Godzilla movie. We're like looking down at the ground and then trying to bend down and not fall over and pick it up. And that was a flight that was only uh, eight or nine days. So after six months, it's even more exaggerated. Oh, <laughs> unbelievable. Unbelievable. Now, by the time this uh, is produced, this episode that we're recording, the film crew that's at the uh, ISS will have returned. They're up there right now as we speak. Uh, something for Russian TV, as I, I, I believe. The, the U.S. is talking about sending Tom Cruise up to film an American film at the, uh, the ISS. Are we witnessing another space race between Russia and the U.S.? No. Uh, are, are we at the, at the point where it's time, to, it's time to start sending non-astronauts into space on a regular basis? To call that a space race is silly, but um, I think it's wonderful that we have made spaceflight safe enough and therefore simple and cheap enough that now you can start getting to the point where it can be accessible to people that couldn't get there before. In order to fly in space, historically, you had to be a trillionaire. You had to be a nation. No, nobody else could afford spaceflight. And then cost has dropped over time. The space shuttle was incredibly expensive to fly on, but we still took basically unqualified, a few unqualified people up. You know, we took a couple politicians up. And we took a school teacher up and then she died because, you know, it was way too soon to be taking passengers on board a spaceship. You need everybody to be competent. But that was a long time ago. And we've learned a lot. And with the new vehicles, that, like the Soyuz that just launched with uh, only one competent person on board and two passengers, Anton Sklaperov is the cosmonaut. But the vehicle started out really primitive, the Soyuz, when it was first built. But now it's all digital, you know, and, and it becomes reasonably safe for one person to be able to fly the thing all the way up and all the way down. So that opens up new opportunity. It may be too early, like we were with Krista McAuliffe, but they got to station okay. And hopefully, the, you know, we're just filming this now, but hopefully they'll get back okay. On the American side, SpaceX has built a vehicle that is so safe that in September, four people flew to space and stayed there for almost exactly the same amount of time as Valentina Tereshkova, you know, three days, 50 times around the world. And none of them are professional astronauts. One was a pilot, at least, so he had some idea what he was doing. But with almost no training at all, that spaceship safely took care of four people for 50 orbits of the world. So that opens up, so long as you can get the cost down low enough, that opens up huge opportunity. But look at the cost of making a blockbuster movie. It's often hundreds of millions of US dollars to make a blockbuster movie. And so if you can get the cost of spaceflight down low enough, it just becomes one more set that you can go film on, you know, kind of cool. And it gives it sort of a cachet. 
it's still really early days, you know, and I don't know when Tom Cruise is going to fly, maybe, maybe fairly soon. But the fact that there's a Russian film crew up on the International Space Station, cool. They're the first to do it. I mean, there was a Japanese journalist who flew to Mir in the early 1990s. So, you know, it's not that much new. So, you know, it's getting there. But to me, it's just an indicator of how far we've come and how safe spaceflight is and how much the cost is coming down. And, and it's continuing to plummet with the, you know, the new vehicle that SpaceX is building and launching out of Texas. So it's, I think it's a really good, important trajectory. And these uh, commercial applications of it, they're just reflections of, of how good it is now. You talked about uh, flying up with one Soyuz pilot and two passengers. I remember the, the airplane movies uh, and Sandra Bullock in Gravity. Could one of those passengers actually land the Soyuz if they had to with yes. instruction from Mission Control? If nothing breaks, the Soyuz lands itself. You don't have to do a thing. Really? But, but things break all the time. It's like most machinery. You know, you, you don't need people unless something's going wrong. But, you know, if you look at uh, a few years ago, an airplane took out of New York, took off out of New York, and it went through a flock of geese, and a goose went down each engine and destroyed both engines. And the skill of that pilot, he saved every single life on board. If it had been a machine flying the airplane, everybody would have died. We would have lost hundreds of lives. So it's when, when things are working perfectly, you know, you don't need human intuition and judgment and skill and cunning. It's when things go wrong. So the Soyuz can fly itself, just like a Progress, because that's kind of an unmanned Soyuz. But when things go wrong, that's when you need at least one qualified person to do the right things. And that's why Anton's there. And if Anton got appendicitis or something, we'd have to put somebody else competent in that seat to bring the passengers home. Yeah. Miracle on the Hudson. Who could forget it? Yeah. Amazing, amazing day. What, what is it, Chris, that made you a leader? Tell us in 30 seconds or less. We need leadership when things are going wrong. And so what made me a leader was a desire to make the most of myself and to be competent and skilled enough that when my turn came, I could have the greatest chance possible of making the right decision to be able to help a group of people as best I possibly could. I studied it my whole life. I learned from other leaders, but it's fundamentally the need and the set of personal skills. That's what made me a leader. Fascinating. And what does the future hold for Colonel Chris Hadfield? Where, where do you see yourself in 2025, 2030? I'm writing a sequel to the Apollo murders right now. So I, I, I've enjoyed writing you know, thriller fiction. So there'll be another book. I help run several space companies. I'm an advisor to SpaceX. I'm a, on the advisory board of Virgin Galactic. I help run Momentus. Working there, I teach um, at the University of Waterloo. I help run a big technology incubator. I run the whole space stream of that called the Creative Destruction Lab. I run a space foundation that's looking at settlement laws as we start to settle on the moon. And that's happening much sooner than you think. And what are like property rights and how are we going to set up a geopolitical system as we start to settle other planets and other orbiting bodies. So I'm the chair of the board of that foundation. And uh, when Bowie's band starts touring again, I tour with Bowie's band and play a little bit of music. I speak all over the world. I did a master class that I think folks have found really interesting here during the pandemic. And I'm always looking for new challenges and new things. And uh, I've done several TV series. I did a BBC series and I did a National Geographic series. So there may be something like that still in the works. And I like to exercise every day and share what I'm doing. So I, I got a full plate and they all keep me entertained and busy. And they re really make me eager to start every single day. Well, good for you. Now you're talking about property rights on the moon. 
I did buy on the internet a crater for my wife, and I have a certificate saying that it belongs to me. Are you saying that I may lose that in the future? You don't own it. It's named maybe for your wife, and that's okay because we have to name things. But if you go to the uh, Outer Space Treaty, which is the current governing legal document signed by all the various uh, appropriate members through the United Nations, it pretty clearly delineates that you and your wife don't own that crater on the moon. But we, until we actually get there and, and start finding things of value, you know, there's probably a lot of rare earth elements. And there may be some, and you'll see in the Apollo murders, actually, how that, how that rare elements on the moon uh, unfold. But um, until we actually test the system, who can enforce the laws? You know, if someone, if Elon Musk goes to the moon and starts digging and, and bringing back things of value, you know, who can stop them? Who's going to enforce the laws? Whose laws do we follow? Do we just take a little China and a little Russia and a little United States and a little India and a little Japan and a little United Arab Emirates and just take our currently flawed geopolitical mosaic and just transpose that onto the moon? That would be stupid. You know, but hopefully, like in Antarctica, hopefully we can get a different model. And, and I think it, it's a historical time in history to address it. And that's why, you know, I, I chair the foundation and why my folks are doing great work there. And they're not my folks, you know, I'm their chair, but, uh, <laughs> but they're doing superb work at the Open Lunar Foundation in order to try and work on, on just that issue. And it also allows us to rethink our political systems on Earth, which is kind of another backwards and useful way. Uh, and useful result of uh, exploration. Well, it's been fascinating. Really, it has been uh, a pleasure to speak with you, Chris. I never will forget the talk you gave to us at the Canadian Embassy. Gosh, it must have been uh, 15 years ago or more. Uh, we have been privileged today to have as our guest the decorated astronaut, engineer, pilot, and author, Colonel Chris Hadfield. Thank you so much for joining us today, Chris. Hey, thanks very much, Nathan. It's a privilege, and I very much look forward to my next trip to Moscow. Uh, it's, it's my favorite city on earth for a lot of good reasons. Thanks for having me in today. Well, I hope you'll find time for lunch with me. I would love it. Thanks. All right. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Icebreakers, the podcast produced by Serba, a nonprofit business association supporting trade, investment, and good relations between Canada and the countries of Eurasia. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to the show and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can join our LinkedIn group to send questions to guests and find more information about the podcast series in general on our website at www.serbanet.org. Thanks for tuning in.